you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And our focus this morning will be on verse 14b, uh, the second half of verse 14. Uh, but I will start reading uh, at the first half of verse 14. 1 Corinthians 7, 14. Hear now the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Amen. Grass withers, flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would send your avian spirit now to descend on the proclamation of your word. Uh, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Uh, open our hearts uh, to receive your word with gladness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the role of the church and sacraments in the discipleship of the next generation? Uh, should the infants of believing parents be baptized? Uh, what is the task of the church today as it pertains to the upbringing of Christian children? Uh, children who are called to be the light of Christ in a dark world. Called to represent His kingdom. Uh, those questions are not theoretical questions that have no connection to the real world, but rather are weighty, significant, and life-influencing questions that lie at the very heart of the next generation. Covenant children who are being raised in Christ's church. This demographic of people within the church are disciples that need to be equipped. And it's not just because they're covenant children. It's because they are raised in the covenant community among God's people. They are the future of the church. They are the church. Uh, crucial to our text, Paul makes it clear that God never makes a covenant with professing believers without also making a covenant with their children. In the context of our verse, the target verse uh, rather, in verse 14b, comes out of Paul's marriage counseling, um, principles of marriage, a robust doctrine of marriage that you read there in the entire chapter. And specifically in verse 14a, he speaks to the reality of unbelieving spouses who are made holy by their believing spouses. And this by virtue of that unbelieving spouse's vicinity to the influence of the gospel. 
And in like manner, the child of at least one believing parent, Paul refers to as holy. Notice he doesn't say the children are potentially made holy, as in the case of the unbelieving spouse. Rather, he says that the children are holy. In other words, it's definitive. Children who fall into this category, according to Paul, are not potentially made holy, but are holy, set apart, special in the eyes of God, in covenant with God. But what does it mean to be in covenant with God? Well, perhaps one of the best definitions of covenant is found in Dr. O. Palmer Robertson's famous work, The Christ of the Covenants. And there, he defines covenant as a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. In other words, the bond is that committed relationship, not necessarily salvific. And, and through that bond, God commits himself to his visible people. And in return, they are to be committed to him as well. And Robertson says, it's a bond in blood. And he says that because it involves life and death. Covenant keeping results in life. That's all throughout the Old Testament. And covenant breaking results in death. Dual sanctions, so to speak. And it's sovereignly administered because God is the one who initiates the covenant relationship. And so, that's the idea of this set-apartness, this holiness that Paul's referring to in our text in verse 14b. It's also worth noting that Paul is not referring to pursuing holiness as we would understand it in the sense of obedience to God's law, although that's what people in covenant with God are called to do. He's not talking about that. Neither is he referring to holiness in the sense that God is holy. If he were, it would be blasphemous. Paul's not applying either of those definitions to the holiness of of these children. Rather, he's using Old Testament phraseology here. Just as Israel was a holy nation and therefore in covenant with God, so too the children of believers. And, and he's taking that definition of holiness uh, to be covenantally set apart, to consecrate, to regard as sacred. And he applies it to the children born of Christian parents. In Exodus 19, God says this to Israel at Mount Sinai. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. 
and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But that's not when God's covenantal dealings with his people began. In fact, if you go back to Genesis, Adam's relationship with God looked beyond Adam to his offspring, beyond him to his children. And that same principle of familial solidarity applies to God's covenant with Noah. Genesis 6.18 But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark. You and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. In a similar way, Abraham's covenant also included his children, continuing the pattern established with Adam and Noah. That is, God brought professing believers into covenant along with their children. Genesis 17, 7, And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you, throughout their generations, for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. God bonded Abraham and his offspring to himself by saying that he is entering into a covenant with him and his offspring down through their generations. Uh, notice it does not say, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring, but in a different sense that I'm establishing with you. Nor does it say, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring when they reach an age of accountability and show marks of conversion. And so, uh, the pattern is clear from the beginning on. The children of believers are set apart as holy and in covenant with God. A pattern that continues into Paul's doctrine of covenant children in 1 Corinthians 7, 14b. And so, when Presbyterians refer to a child as a covenant child, it's important to note that the term is not a tagline attached to babies because it's cute, although it is. The term has biblical, theological, and practical significance. And when Christian parents acknowledge this about their children... Discipleship becomes all the more meaningful and effective as the next generation is properly nurtured and equipped with the necessary tools to engage the world around them for the cause of Christ. But to further reiterate this point about covenantal holiness in the New Testament, uh, we must also consider the movement from the holy sacrament of circumcision to the holy sacrament of baptism. Paul elsewhere says this in Colossians 2, 11-12. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh 
by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. Notice that the circumcision done by Christ is accomplished by baptism. And so, when trying to understand what baptism is, it's important to draw upon this connection with circumcision. And what does Paul say? Well, he clearly equates circumcision and baptism such that baptism becomes the new covenant fulfillment of circumcision. In other words, just as the sacrament of circumcision pointed to circumcision of the heart, that is, regeneration, so too does the sacrament of baptism point to the Spirit being poured out on a sinner. Also a picture of regeneration. What does God say in Deuteronomy 10.6? Circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. God always cared more about the heart change as opposed to external obedience, even in the Old Testament. And He preserved a remnant, a remnant whose hearts would be circumcised. And so circumcision and baptism point to the same reality, the Spirit being poured out in regeneration to make us new creations in Christ. And understanding this significance of the connection between those two things is vital to understanding the reason why the Reformed and Presbyterian churches baptize children before they have made a credible profession of faith. In other words, just as Old Testament believers circumcised their children, serving as a pointer to heart circumcision, regeneration, Christians should baptize their children, serving as a pointer to regeneration, irrespective of whether that child happens to be a viper in a diaper. And this is part of the reason Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7.14, recognizes the children of believers as holy set apart and in covenant with God. Uh, he's saying covenant children in the new covenant are no less holy and set apart than covenant children included in the covenant of circumcision. They're equally holy and set apart. Uh, and even though those children were born in original sin, Paul recognizes their status as members of the covenant and calls them holy. And what's even more beautiful about this is that in the new covenant, the covenant sign has become even more expansive because females are now included in the covenant sign. But why is it that only males received the sign in the Old Covenant, 
Whereas in the new covenant, both males and females receive the sign. Well, the fact that females are now included symbolizes the expansion of God's covenant to include the Gentiles as the gospel goes forth to the nations. Uh, the covenant community now is not the nation of Israel alone. It's not restricted to the Jews, but also includes Gentiles, Ephesians 2. And so to reflect that reality and that expansion, the covenant sign of baptism is not restricted to males, but is also applied to females, such as Lydia in Acts 16. So notice how the recipients of the covenant sign in the New Testament broadens. Uh, that's part of the newness of the new covenant. Uh, it doesn't become more restrictive by excluding a certain gender or age group. Uh, that's why the onus is not on the Presbyterian to prove to the Baptist where infant baptism is explicitly practiced in the New Testament. The onus is on our Baptist comrades to show us when and where God kicked out an entire demographic, namely children, from His covenant community. And so... Paul's doctrine of the covenantal holiness of children is not a proof text for infant baptism, but it does provide the theological and biblical basis for the practice. The child of at least one professing believer is baptized on the grounds of covenant. Now, if the children of believers are holy as Paul uh, said, uh, should they also be admitted to the Lord's Supper by virtue of their membership in the covenant? The answer to that is a resounding no, uh, because the Lord's Supper is a sacrament of renewal for those who have made a public profession, those who have matured into the state of being able to examine themselves. Notice that Paul, in just four chapters forward, uh, speaks to the necessity of self-examination for covenant members. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. Contrast that with paedo-baptism, which for the infant is a sacrament of initiation or confirmation into the covenant to which they already belong, according to 1 Corinthians seven fourteen b and so, admittance to the Lord's table is not a matter of whether one is a covenant member, but whether the covenant member is mature enough for the self-examination that Scripture requires. And that's why we wait until the covenant child makes a credible profession of faith in Christ. He or she must be able to proclaim the Lord's death, according to Paul. And proclaiming the Lord's death is synonymous with professing faith in Him. 
But having said all of that, Paul's reference to covenant children as holy, according to our text, is not just a pronouncement of these children as set apart and in covenant with God. It's more than that. Uh, his pronouncement of these children as holy also entails a judgment of charity. In other words, how should covenant children be treated? How are we as the church to view them? Well, according to God's covenantal promises, He promises the gift of the Holy Spirit to believers and to their children in Acts 2, 38-39. Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and to your children. But notice that the promise, that is the gift of the Holy Spirit, is not just promised to those who repent, it's promised to the children of those who repent. Why? Well, because the children of believers are also the expectant heirs of the covenant of grace in Christ. In other words, they are to be treated as holy, even if they haven't repented yet. They are to be treated as holy, as recipients of the promised Spirit. They are to be treated as believers until they prove otherwise. Now, to be sure, neither Paul nor Peter are espousing presumptive regeneration. They're not espousing that when they say we should treat covenant children as holy recipients of this promise. They're not telling us to presume that our covenant children are regenerate. Uh, that error was espoused uh, not too long ago uh, by Abraham Kuyper in the Dutch Reformed Church. Uh, he happens to be one of my favorite theologians, but uh, he sadly espoused that doctrine of presumptive regeneration, which many uh, Reformed churches in America hold to as well. Uh, and that sort of view uh, led to all kinds of problems, uh, all forms of nominalism in the church, a, a laxing of the call to repentance and faith. Uh, and so, while covenant children should not be presumed to be believers, they should nevertheless be treated as believers, as belonging to God, unless by their lives they prove Otherwise, John Calvin says, It follows that the children of believers are not baptized, that they may thereby then become the children of God, as if they had been before aliens to the church. Uh, but on the contrary, they are received into the church by this solemn sign, since they already belong to the visible body of Christ. I think he's right. By virtue of the covenant child's holiness, 
in 1 Corinthians 7, 14. They already belong to the visible body of Christ, the visible church. And you treat everyone in the visible church, regardless of their age, as a brother or sister in Christ. You grant them that judgment of charity. Now, it's true that all people are either elect or non-elect. I know I'm in a room full of Calvinists here. People are either elect or non-elect. That is true. But exercising a judgment of charity has nothing to do with settling infallibly and absolutely who is elect and who is not. In the history of God's covenant, uh, there have been Ishmaels and Esau's, for not all Israelites are Israelites indeed, Romans 9, 6, and not all Christians are Christians indeed, 1 John 2, 19. Uh, what does Jesus say in John 15? He cuts off every branch in Christ that does not bear fruit. Why are these branches that Jesus refers to that don't bear fruit, why does he say that those branches are in him? Well, because of that covenantal holiness, uh, that close proximity to Christ. Judas was a disciple and therefore in Christ, in a sense, uh, even though he was a son of perdition from the beginning, uh, yet he was still externally connected to Christ. In other words, a judgment of charity on its own is not concerned with God's secret decrees uh, because the secret things belong to the Lord. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Rather, a charitable judgment has to do with how the church should treat Children born of Christian parents according to God's revealed will. The famous uh, Princeton theologian B.B. Warfield put it this way. All Protestants should easily agree that only Christ's children have a right to the ordinance of infant baptism. We say that the church should receive as the children of Christ all whom in the judgment of charity it may fairly recognize as such. And so, irrespective of election, we administer infant baptism on the basis that covenant children are holy. God's normal means of adding to the body of Christ is by saving children born of Christian parents. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. And the Lord God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. The Bible is crystal clear that we are generally raising Jacobs, not Esau's. Generally. As a consequence, it's not uncommon to hear testimonies, particularly in Presbyterian congregations, where people have experienced salvation organically 
and do not remember a time in their lives when they did not know the Lord. Our God is a God who works in generations. Isaiah 59:21. It's not a coincidence that there are so many families sitting here this morning. That's just the way the Lord works. He's a God of the household and not individuals alone. It's important to note that God can save a person at any stage of life. Any stage, even in infancy. A God regenerated John the Baptist, Jeremiah, Samson, all in infancy. He regenerated David in infancy. Psalm 22.9, David says, You made me trust in you on my mother's breast. And David himself was comforted in the hope of seeing his own covenant son who passed away when he said, in 2 Samuel 12.23, he says, He will not return to me, but I will go to him. That's David putting his hope in the covenant promises of God for our children. And if you've lost a child in infancy, you have that same hope that David had because of these covenant promises of God to be a God to us and our household. Christian parents teach their children to call upon God as Father when we recite the Lord's Prayer with them. The Apostle Paul addresses children as saints in his letter to the Ephesians, exhorting them to obey their parents in the Lord. And Jesus himself embraces covenant children as kingdom heirs, saying that the kingdom of heaven belongs to them, Mark 10, 14. Covenant children, therefore, should be extended the same judgment of charity in the church as professing adults and treated as believers, since the Holy Spirit does not discriminate in relation to age. On those grounds, baptism is just as applicable to covenant infants as it is to professing adults. In fact, the only difference is that adults must first demonstrate the faith of a child before they can be baptized. Now, it's important to note that the grace signified in baptism is not tied to the moment of administration. Uh, but there are groups who advocate that saving grace is tied to the moment of administration, that's called baptismal regeneration. Uh, that's the Roman Catholic view. And Lutherans hold to a form of baptismal regeneration as well. In other words, these groups believe that water baptism regenerates. Uh, that water baptism joins a person salvifically to Christ. Uh, we would reject that as unbiblical and just as dangerous as presumptive regeneration. Uh, but having said that, 
It does seem strange to place the covenant sign on a person and then act as though we should not treat that person as a brother or sister in Christ, right? Here's what I mean. In evangelical churches throughout the world, uh, people don't exhibit a posture of suspicion toward adults who are baptized upon profession. Uh, both the minister and congregants who are present treat that professing adult as a believer, right? Uh, both the minister and congregants who are present grant them that judgment of charity. Uh, of course, that judgment of charity is not an infallible certainty. A baptized adult may very well prove the church wrong and depart from the fellowship. And so if that's the case, why should an adult receive the benefit of a charitable judgment? Whereas a covenant child, who Paul describes as holy, should not. The answer, more often than not, will be, well, we extend a judgment of charity based on the adult's profession of faith. Uh, but is an adult's profession of faith really a more sufficient testimony that it merits a charitable judgment, whereas God's placing of a child in the visible church and placing his sign and seal upon him is a less sufficient testimony? A man's fallible profession of faith is exactly that. Surely all members in God's covenant ought to be given the same charitable consideration. Fortunately, this uh, charitable judgment of covenant children largely came to a halt after the first historic Great Awakening in the United States in the 1700s. Uh, the New Side Presbyterian faction uh, at the time uh, were advocating for the necessity of recalling personal conversion experiences, uh, elevating that over organic covenantal upbringing. And so if someone said, I don't remember a time in my life when I didn't know Jesus, I've always known Jesus, uh, that would be looked down upon. Uh, what they were looking for uh, was that recollection of a conversion experience. Uh, otherwise, they wouldn't be allowed into admission into the church, membership into the church. And uh, that emphasis uh, on being able to point back to a date and a time when you were converted, that eclipsed the covenantal nurture of children. Uh, because those recollections of conversion experiences were viewed as central to a Christian's testimony. You know, I've always said the essence of a Christian testimony is not whether you remember a time in your life when you believed in Jesus. The essence of a Christian testimony is are you trusting in Christ now for salvation? Are you trusting in Him now? And so that's part of the reason uh, New Side Presbyterians in America adopted a more 
a baptistic view of covenant children, not treating them as holy, but treating them as virtually unholy until they were able to uh, recollect a Damascus moment, so to speak. We said before that in the Gospels, Jesus embraced covenant children as kingdom heirs. In Matthew 19, 13 to 14, it says, Then children who were brought to Jesus, that he may lay hands on them and pray, children were brought to him, the disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Uh, do you think that the disciples in that moment viewed those covenant children as holy and set apart unto God? Well, it's obvious they didn't. They viewed the children as unclean, which Paul warns against in our text in verse 14b. Uh, the, the, the disciples viewed uh, these children as outside of the covenant, outside of the camp, uh, which is what being unclean means all throughout the Old Testament. And so Paul uses that phraseology to show that covenant children are not unclean, but holy. And so Jesus rebukes the disciples for their posture of suspicion toward covenant children. And it's important for the church to follow that example of Jesus. In his Reformed Dogmatics, uh, Herman Bovink says the following, Children born of believing parents are, according to the judgment of charity, to be regarded as born again, until the opposite in life and doctrine are clearly manifested. I think he's right. And it's important to note again that the judgment of charity here is not synonymous with certainty. A judgment of charity is not a pronouncement of knowing exactly whether their hearts are regenerate or not. A judgment of charity is recognizing that the Holy Spirit does not discriminate in relation to age. In other words, if Paul says that the covenant community are to be treated as holy, irrespective of age, irrespective of election, then we should follow that prescription. Uh, but what about when God said he loved Jacob and hated Esau. Well, it's interesting. Uh, Abraham had no idea that those were God's divine decrees. He had no idea. In fact, the first mention of God loving Jacob and hating Esau does not occur until the last book of the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 1. Abraham didn't know God's secret decrees. He treated all of his covenant children as holy, trusting that God was a God of the household. And since he is a God of the household, 
it stands to reason that the church's worship service should also include households. I see some in here today, and that warms my heart. Uh, put differently, covenant children, as set apart, as part of God's covenant, should be present in the public worship of God along with their parents. Uh, they are holy and therefore are to be included in the public worship of God. The covenant assembly. This is the covenant assembly. The pattern of household inclusion is important in worship. Why? Well, because the church is the household of households. At Mount Sinai, when the first corporate worship service took place, whole families were present around the mountain when Moses gave the commandments. In Romans 10, verse 14, it says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in, of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? In verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, through this proclamation of the word of Christ. Uh, when my wife Angelita was pregnant, uh, we made sure she was present in church because God could regenerate that fetus in the womb under the preaching of the word. That's what happened to John the Baptist. God works like that. The Holy Spirit does not discriminate in relation to age. And it's not just that. But there's no ordinary possibility of salvation outside of the visible church, according to our confession in chapter 25. Uh, some churches object to having children in the sanctuary because they can be noisy and disruptive to adults. Disruptive to adults who are worshiping in the service. But the reality is this. If there's no crying in the church, then there's dying in the church. Because the cries of covenant children are a sign of life. And that's no less a part of the worship service than our own singing. We should rejoice when we hear infant noises in our midst. Because those noises are noises of the covenant. Indicating that there's covenant life in a congregation. And so, while it's crucial to grasp the importance of the notion of covenant as well as the continuity of the covenant signs as it relates to these holy children. It's also important to extend a judgment of charity toward these covenant children. In other words, children born of Christian parents are to be treated as believers and raised within our covenant communities as disciples of Jesus, not as outsiders who are strangers 
to the covenants of promise. As one of my professors uh, from RTS said, Howard Griffith, one of the greatest blessings of Reformed ecclesiology is that it sees the church as a family made up of families. That's what the church is. And covenant children are no less a part of the church in that way. But having said all of that, let me just say that these teachings are not at all intended to alleviate the need for faithful Christian parenting. It's intended to establish it. Baptized children are to be called to continual repentance, just as baptized adults are to be called to continual repentance. And if you have covenant children who've left the church, continue to pray. Continue to be a gospel voice in their lives. Prodigal sons and daughters come back precisely because our God is a God of the household. Hear this account of the Philippian jailer as we close. Acts chapter 16, verse 25 and follow. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your church, for the covenant community you have placed us in. We thank you for the covenant children in our midst, those whom the Apostle Paul describes as holy, those whom our Lord Jesus loves as his own. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Give us the grace as Christian parents, to disciple them well, to nurture them and to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord, even as those whom the Lord Jesus tells us to model our faith after. 
grant us that childlike faith. A faith that looks outside of ourselves. A faith that looks to you and to your promises to us. For we ask all these things in the name and for the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.